welcome everyone uh, to this, our sixth Simsbury Bank Yukon School of Business Family Business Program event. Thank you all very much for coming today. My name is Martin Geitz. I'm president and CEO of Simsbury Bank. Today's topic is difficult conversations. Uh, the intersection of family dynamics with the running of a business adds an entire dimension to roles, relationships, and decision-making that is not present in businesses that are not run by members of the same family. This can lead to difficult conversations and sometimes to conflict. We're very fortunate today to have two experts in the family business dynamics to share with us their perspectives. Blair Tripp is an experienced negotiator, mediator, and family business consultant. She is the managing partner of Continuity LLC, a global firm working with family businesses and their stakeholders. Blair is also the co-author of a book called Deconstructing Conflict, a book that shines a very bright light on the complexity of family business member relationships and managing conflict that may arise from them. Blair earned her MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School and her undergraduate degree from Connecticut College. Dr. David Souter is the interim dean of UConn School of Business. He's been a member of UConn's faculty for 12 years. His areas of expertise, in addition to family business, include long-term corporate investments, organization design and sustainability, and mergers and acquisitions. His scholarly work has been published in a variety of academic journals. Prior to joining academia, Dr. Souter spent a decade in as a strategy consultant. Dr. Souter earned his PhD from the University of Michigan Carlson School and his undergraduate degree from Wharton. So please uh, join me in welcoming Blair Tripp and David Souter. Thank you, Martin, for that nice introduction. Uh, nice to see some familiar faces and also some new faces uh, out there today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back here and, and glad you could join us. Um, so the book is great. You're going to enjoy it. And we're going to use some time over the next 45 minutes uh, to let you uh, get a little preview of the book and, and understand what was going on. But I wanted to start. Writing a book is a big task. What made you want to do it? And what were you trying to say that's different than what's out there already. Um, well, I also want to say thank you for the introduction, and, and it's really a pleasure to be here. So thank you for, for coming this afternoon. Um, you know, my partner, Doug Baumel, who was co-author with me, we had been working in the family business field for a while. And we found that there was a lot of literature out there that was really focusing on best practices, best practices for succession, for governance, for bringing your child into the business. And we came to believe that really all of these best practices were really good ideas that worked for some families. Some successful families employed them, some unsuccessful families employed them, and basic family business research is somewhat skewed towards those who are successful. But we sort of felt that the best practice for your family business hasn't been written yet, and that you really had to start with a clean sheet of paper and not make assumptions on, you know, I read this in the book, I, I talk about, you know, parenting books, if any of you have ever had you know, read parenting books, they, they don't work because your situation is different. And so we came up with really a methodology for how do you unpack what is going on in a family enterprise? How do you understand what are all the challenges in this particular family with this constellation of people and issues and challenges and whatnot? And how do you make sure that you understand the complexity that's inherent in the family enterprise and not miss anything and come up with a way to really understand what, what um, is going on. And so with Doug, who's got an engineering background, I have a psychology background, we both have MBAs, but we looked at things very differently. Um, 
and I brought a lot from, from dispute resolution. He brought a lot from, from uh, systems thinking and, and engineering. And we came up with this equation for how do you understand what is going on at all times in a company, and how would you unpack and be able to understand how you would approach what was going on. And so we had this great you know, intellectual property that we made people sign NDAs when we walked them through it. And we thought, this, is, this actually really works, and we should put it out there. And um, so we thought, well, let's write a book, and you know, five minutes later, it was, it was done. I don't believe that. Um, so uh, not best practices, right? And, and that's actually a theme we talk about. Um, so I'm a, as Martin said, I'm a strategy professor by trade. And, and we actually talk about it. If, you know, if, if you're following a best practice, you're not really customizing to the situation. It's not really strategy. And, and that sounds like uh, a big part of your motivation behind it. Um, but I think one of the things you did notice as a common denominator is that conflict is present in almost every family business at some point. Yeah. But you have a little bit of a unique approach in that you're not saying to, uh, you're not trying to eliminate conflict, you're talking about how to manage it. Um, so can you take us, you know, preview it a little bit for the people who read the book later. What, what does it mean to, um, to manage conflict, not eliminate it? Well, I, I think if you make a distinction between dispute resolution and conflict management, you'll get a sense of where I'm going with the concept of managing it. Conflict is really built into the structure of family enterprise. And that's because stakeholders have very interdependent roles and responsibilities. They have so much that's going on and complicated, and the relationships make it even more difficult to, to um, understand what is happening, that you can't just resolve one dispute and move on. Because if you think of it sort of as a whack-a-mole uh, you, you resolve a dispute, there's going to be another one that's going to pop up, and you'll resolve that, and there'll be another one that's going to pop up. If you think of, of family enterprise more like a chessboard, where there are lots of moving parts, and you really have to understand the entire board, and you move the queen across the board, um, that could be a good move, but only within the context of everything else that's going on. So if you look at things from that standpoint, you understand that there's no way to resolve things and make it go away. Um, you have to just recognize that there are constantly going to be challenges and um, sharing of roles and disputes and you know uncomfortable situations that come up just because families are complicated, businesses are complicated, and you put them together and, and it's even more complicated. So that's, that's you know, yeah. our thinking. One of the nice things about the book, and you can hear it in that answer, is that there's a lot of metaphors that are really appropriate for bringing out the, the ideas of the whack-a-mole and the chests and things like that. It, you know, it's, it's the same thing reading the book. You see, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, that's what they mean by that. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, so we talked about, uh, we invited people here on the premise that part of managing conflicts is dealing with uh, difficult conversations. Um, what's, what's your experience with that, and how does that play into, the, into your framework? Well, I think a difficult conversation is really anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or, or awkward. Anything that really um, makes you worry that something important is going to happen that's going to alter your reality or the situation that you are hoping for. And so you're looking at how do I, you know, how, how do I approach a conversation that could have tremendous impact or could have spillover effects or ramifications that maybe I hadn't been counting on. 
And if you think of the framework that most conversations, and, and I borrow this from the book Difficult Conversations by Doug Stone um, and Sheila Heen, if you haven't read that, that's a really great book. But the framework is essentially saying that each conversation is divided into three separate conversations. There's the what happened and you know, what are we talking about. There's the emotional component, what's, how am I feeling about this? And then there's the identity component, which is about what is that saying about me? So if I ask for a raise, there's a, con there's, a, there's a discussion about how much I should get. There's also how I feel about it. Do I feel worthy? Am I feeling like I, I deserve it? And, and how, you know, what's going to happen if I don't get it? And then there's the identity piece that makes me worry, if I don't get it, does that mean I'm not worthy or I'm not you know, lovable or you know, my father just never really liked me as much as he liked my brother? So there are all these things that are packed into one conversation, which makes it very difficult to navigate. Any, again, we're trying to get away from the one-size-fits-all advice, but any general you know, things, examples that you've seen where it, where it works better than others for, for managing a diff difficult conversation? Um, you know, like any negotiation that you would ever enter into, preparation is key. The more you can understand for yourself what are your goals, what are you trying to achieve from this, what are your interests, and to keep your, yourself focused on your interest at the end of the day. You know, principles are great, but they don't help you in the end. I mean, they, I shouldn't say they don't help you in the end. Principles are good. We need to be principled. However, um, you don't go to court on principle. That's, that's just, you're going to fund a lot of attorneys, um, summer homes. Uh, you, you, you really want to be looking at what is it that I want, what am I trying to achieve, and what are the things that I need to worry about? In, uh, in the experience that you and Doug have had working with family businesses, what are some of the primary triggers for conflict? Um, well, you know, we talk about it in the book, you know, what, what triggers an active conflict is some use of disrespected power. So when somebody exerts power over a person or a group of people in a way that is not respected, that's going to trigger conflict. So for example, if, if uh, um, you know, I'm the marketing director and my brother is the CEO of the company, and I work really hard on my marketing plan and my brother CEO says, that's terrible, you should go redo it, you know, I might be upset, I might think I should get a new job because I think this is really great, and if my values and what I think is important doesn't fly, maybe this is the wrong place for me. If I respect that my brother got that job because he went to the right school, he has the skills, he works really hard, the employees respect him, et cetera, I, I'll take it on the chin and I'll say, okay, I'll, I guess I need to redo it. On the other hand, if I believe that he got the job because he's the oldest, or because he golfs with dad and I don't, or because he, you know, is, you know, um, you know, mom's favorite for whatever reason. And I don't respect that he works hard or that he knows what he's doing or that the employees respect him, then I'm gonna, that's going to really trigger a conflict because I'm going to be forced into a position in a way that I don't respect. And that's usually a trigger. One, um, it struck me in reading the book that, that it, these weren't the words you used, but it reminded me of something I remember learning as a graduate student that, um, that were, when coworkers, this wasn't family businesses, this was business in, in general, but when coworkers disagreed over tasks, uh, they, could, they could still make it productive, but if the disagreement was based in the relationship, not the task, it was hard to move forward. And so devil's advocacy and things like that work because 
people understand it's not relational, it's, it's in the task, and, and people are opposing them for good reason, and if they don't understand that, then it, then it kind of falls apart very quickly. Um, the, um, is the, have you seen a difference, big organizations, small organizations? Do you, you know, is, is that one of the ways you can customize advice, or, or does this play out similarly across the board? What's, what's most important in the work that I do when I work with a company is in, at what generation do they find themselves. If they're transitioning from first to second generation, that's a challenge for certain reasons. Transitioning from second to third, there are different kinds of challenges third to fourth, even, even different challenges there. So where they are in the generational progression will have a large impact on what they need and, and what they're grappling with most likely. The size of the company doesn't really matter, except when it's a very small company, the problem is, is that the threats are really existential. And they don't necessarily have the resources to implement the, the options that we can put forth to, to you know, get them to move out of the situation they're in. So that's really the difference. The other thing is, is that they don't have the same opportunity as larger companies to sell or to bring in a, a third party you know, financial partner. When it's a very small company, you can sell it, but by the time you paid the taxes, et cetera, you might still need a job or your children might need a job. And if you're not accustomed to working for other people and you're in your 50s or 60s or whatever, that's, that's pretty tough. So the larger companies have more options um, and more ability to implement different strategies. Okay, so the, <clears throat> the core of the book, a lot of the book is centered around something called the conflict equation. Which, uh, so, uh, so I'm gonna ask you to say a few things about it, but it, it struck me that, um, so it's kind of, it's math, but without numbers. And I realized that some of my students would really like that. Um, <clears throat> and I said that to you earlier. I realized that there are other of my students that really wouldn't. I have other students who are really mathy and, and would, would find it very disconcerting. But, but it's math principles and, and moves the levers around. So, um, so we, we don't want to uh, ruin the book or try and get the whole thing. How many different factors go into the conflict equation? There's a whole bunch. There's how you probably... Yeah, there, there are about eight in the, in the okay. basic equation, but there are subsets that sort of define what each of the individual components might, or some of the components might... Right, and, and so each of. each of the eight kind of makes up its own chapter and you go through it in detail. Here, I wanted to ask you about one of them uh, because it's, you know, some of the other ones you'd, you'd kind of get from the name of them if, if we listed them out, but one of them was the family factor. Um, that one takes a little more explanation. Can you tell us a little bit about the family factor and how you came up with it and what it means and how it fits into the equation? So the family factor, I think, is actually the most important component of the entire um, equation. Essentially, the family factor answers the question, is the family bond strong enough to leverage uh, compromise, forgiveness, and commitment to change? So is your family bond going to help you act not necessarily in your own self-interest, but compromise because you are, are going to do things for the sake of the family? And there are components, sort of subcomponents, to the family factor, and we break it down and we look at shared history, um, vision for being family in the future, and trust. So shared history is, you know, do you have a meaningful shared history? Not just, you know, your siblings, so of course you have a shared history, but sometimes you have siblings that are 15 years apart in age, and they didn't really grow up together. So maybe they don't have much of a shared history. They might have some shared narrative, but they don't have a meaningful shared history. So that, that makes it a little bit harder. Do they have a shared vision for being family in the future? 
So do you think that you're gonna, every 4th of July, you're still gonna get together at the lake or you're gonna spend Thanksgiving together? This is a vision for being family going forward regardless of what happens with the business. So if you have that, you really have something to gain by working things out. Similarly, if you have a shared history, you have something to lose if you don't figure things out. And then there's trust, which is really very important. And I, I look at trust differently from the way many of you might look at trust. So people think of trust as, you know, I've got your back. We, I like you, we want the same things, I'm gonna make sure that, you know, you can trust me, we're gonna, we're gonna do the same thing. Which is great when things are going good, but as soon as I change what I think, that doesn't really hold up. You also might think about trust as, as feeling safe when you're being vulnerable. I can trust that I can make myself vulnerable to you because you're not gonna take advantage of me. And that also works for a while, but, but not always. So when I think about trust, I'm really thinking about predictability. Do I know you well enough to predict how you will behave in any given act, in any given situation? So that I know that I can act in, not in my own self-interest because I know what you're going to do. Now, I might be able to know that you're gonna do exactly the opposite of what I want every single time. You know that I want B, I know you're gonna, you're gonna choose A. But if I know that, then I can trust you. I can trust what you're going to do. And so having a strong family factor you know, says that you know, we have, I have something to lose if I don't compromise and, and commit to some change. I have something to gain if I do. And I can trust how you're going to behave. And as a result, we can make decisions together. Uh, yeah, it, it's one of the interesting things in the book is this idea of predictability as trust. Um, you know, as I went through it, there's this, there's this list of things and they're kind of about trust. And, and when I, I read it quickly at first and I'm like, that, wait, that, that's kind of right, doesn't sound right. And then I went, went and looked back, it's a list of things that are not trust in your definition. Um, but they, they would sound like things that people would often, you know, describe as trust and say about trust. And, and so, you know, I went back and saw that and then, and then you really move into this idea of it as predictability. Um, and that helps you make decisions and, and plan even, you know, with, and that's a very different notion of, right. of thinking about trust. How, where did that come from? Like, was there an example in working with, uh, in working with clients that, that helped kind of bring out that, that distinction, that particular definition? Nothing, no one specific piece. I mean, having worked with many different clients and trying to um, get through what, what, is, what, what works, what doesn't work, what are the things that influence any given outcome, you know, thinking, you know, not, not statistically, but, but trying to group um, different clients and situations into categories from which we could extrapolate what might or might not happen, you know, we hit upon that and, and it, it seemed to stick. Um, another distinction that you draw in the book is that, uh, that it's a little different when you have, say, spouses and in-laws involved versus blood relative family owners. Um, can you talk a little bit about the paradigm for success when it's spouses in a family business or in-laws involved in a family business and, and some of the things that make it distinct from the you know, more the generational or, or siblings or things mm -hmm. like that? Sure. Well, I start out by saying in-laws can be the most unifying or the most polarizing people in families. And a lot of it will have to do with how the family brings them in or keeps them out. So, you know, a lot of people joke the outlaws. Well, that tells you an awful lot about how the family feels about the married in. 
Um, whether or not you bring them in or not, again, there's no right or wrong answer, but there are implications to doing it or not doing it. And so when in-laws are kept out of the family business, um, I think about the implications for the children. So all of a sudden, the children can have all sorts of financial information. The children can have jobs and, you know, or board roles or whatnot in the family, in the family business that perhaps their father can't have because he's not really family. And I think that that has, has a lot of implications. Um, husband and wife teams, when it's just a husband and wife team in a business, I don't really think of that as a family business. And apologies to those of you who are here who are in that situation. It's a great business. But spouses can choose to no longer be family. Um, and one of the things with, the, with families is that the, the um, relationships are, are uniquely permanent. So I can't say, I'm not going to be your sister anymore. I, I can't do that. I can say I'm not going to speak to you, and that's cutoffs, and that's a whole other issue, and we can talk about that. But family relationships are permanent, and a husband-wife team is not necessarily permanent. Now, once children come in, the next generation comes in, then it becomes a family business. So that's sort of my, my take on it. Um, and I think, again, it can, it can be very difficult for spouses to work together and come home together. There are a lot of couples that are able to do this and a lot that just feel like this is just not, not a good thing. But um, so, you know, should in-laws be involved? Again, it depends on the purpose of what you're doing. And they might be involved in certain areas and not others. I always think they need their voices heard. When I work with families, they, I'm not always allowed, but I try very hard to speak to the, to the in-laws. Because even if they don't know anything about the business, they're experts in the family. And um, they have a loud voice, and whatever gets organized at the, around the board table or, or at the business can really become unraveled at home. And so not bringing them into really important decisions, um, I would say, is a mistake. But no best practice. I'm going to take you up on your invitation to go back and talk about the siblings who don't talk. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, I know some families where that's the case, and it seems almost like a divorce or something mm -hmm. like that. Yes, they're technically still related, but they don't interact anymore. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but you, you kind of draw a line there. You say, well, but you're still related, and that matters. So kind of take us mm -hmm. through a little more of that. Well, if you think about the equation, and, and for those of you who haven't seen the book, the, the family factor is a multiplier and the denominator. So it can't really be zero, because then it, it's just not possible. Um, because then the denominator would be zero, and, and that doesn't work. So. Um, there's always at least some relationship there, and you can't get away from that. When the family factor is very, very low, it's, there's less ability to compromise and, and make change and whatnot. But, um, so if I decide that I'm cutting off my mother because she just doesn't understand and she's, she's really you know, ruining my life, um, I will tell you that I can say I won't speak to her or you asked about siblings, same, 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 thing. same thing. But I'm going to be keenly aware every, every uh, Thanksgiving or you know, birthday or any of these things that I'm not inviting her, or I'm not inviting her to my child's wedding or to the, to the shower or any of these things. And so you're never really released from that relationship. And the real downside I see is, is that what does that tell my children? What that tells my children is when you don't get along with somebody, it's okay to just cut them out. And so then when my children encounter a relationship where they're having trouble, maybe even with me, but possibly, but 
um, that, that they're, they're going to say, well, mom cut off grandma, so let, you know, I, don't, I don't need to have this relationship. And just the way substance abuse will run through families, and you see the patterns, same thing with cutoffs. And, and it is not um, something that I would recommend. Um, we work really hard. I'm actually working with a family right now where, where we're getting a, uh, a, a, a son and his wife to meet with the parents. They've just had a baby, and that's sort of given us a bit of an opening to say, let's just try. And we're not looking for a great, close, happy family, that photograph on the mantle. We're looking for a functional relationship. So you can be in the same room, because they share assets. And the families are tied together in, in many business ways. But, but it's, it's a heartache um, for those who don't want to be estranged. And um, we believe that continuing relationships are, are important. That's sort of the cornerstone of why we do what we do. Thanks. Um, Okay, so in the middle of your answer, you talked about the denominator going to zero and stuff like that. I wanted to call that out as sort of, that's how the, that's how the math works in the book, is the principles of math apply. So you've got things that are multipliers and things that are additive and things that are subtractive and, and, and it's basically a ratio, so division is sort of the core of it. Um, but then you allude at times to mathematical principles like, hey, this, you know, this can't be zero or it's undefined, and that's, and that's kind of a problem. And so, so that's kind of how it works. You need this basic understanding of math to follow the logic of it, but you don't have to do heavy calculations. You just have to think about which of these things are you know, raising the good things, which are reducing bad things, um, and putting not, it in context. And I am not a mathematician, I will tell you. I mean, I, I did make it through fourth grade fractions. Um, you would and need to for this book. And that's right, so. really all you need. So if you think about a you know, half of a pie, one over two, versus a quarter of a pie, one over four, if the denominator is small, the answer is big, the big piece. If you think one over four, the quarter of the pie, the answer is smaller. So the goal is, in the equation, to have the denominator be as big as possible, or the numerator, which has sort of all the reasons that there are conflicts and the triggers and the problems that are going on, those are all up top. So the goal is to try to make that smaller, because three quarters is, is more than two quarters. You'd rather have two than three. And so it's, it's really just the, the relationships. My uh, partner, Doug, studied in college with, um, uh, oh my goodness, uh, Carl Sagan, sorry, I had my mind for a second, who, who basically explained that if you can truly understand a system, you can express it in an equation. And so, that was the, the theory behind coming up with this equation, was if we can really understand how family systems work, family business systems, then you can actually express it that way. And um, you guys can all, once you've read it, you can tell me what you think. It, uh, yeah, your backgrounds make sense. It does kind of seem like an engineer's approach, you know, infused with a lot of psychology and, you know, mm -hmm. keeping it about uh, concepts, not, right. not the hard numbers. Um, so, uh, okay, so we've done, uh, parent-child, we've done spouses, we've done siblings, we've done a lot of the family relationships already. Let's talk about outside professionals for a second. Um, you know, what happens if a family decides to bring an outside professional in to be the, you know, a division leader or the CEO or, or something like that? Uh, how does it impact the family structure and the ability to manage through some of these conflicts? Well, I would say so much of it has to do with the family's vision for what they want for the company. The real responsibility of the owners is to decide what is it that we're trying to achieve. And if you want your business to grow and be profitable and be you know, top or top five in, in your niche, wherever you are, you maybe need people who have skills at a certain level once the business has grown beyond the initial founding stage. 
because as businesses grow and become more complex, there's an awful lot more that needs to be managed and, and dealt with. And sometimes you want somebody who's had the experience doing that. And if your goal is to grow and make it to the next level, bringing people in who have the appropriate skills is going to be probably a, a good idea. If you don't do that and the business doesn't grow and it, you just are having only family members in management, that's when conflict can often start because people are finger pointing and we're supposed to make these numbers and what happened and the person just doesn't have that right experience. You know, you're, you're, you're gonna have a first time CEO running your business. Now maybe that's okay, but maybe you really want someone who's been there and done that. Um, but again, the family has to be behind it and understand that this is what we're trying to do and it doesn't, it, it doesn't reflect badly on you, it reflects well that we're making a decision and we're, we're doing the best we can for our company. All right, so I think I'm gonna ask two more questions and then we're gonna open it up uh, for all of you. So I'm giving you your warning, be ready. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to you for, for your questions here. Um, okay, I wanna talk a little bit about recovering from conflict, right? So after experiencing a difficult event, deep conflict, power struggles, disrespect, all the things that go into that. Um, how can a family unit begin to rebuild trust, mutual respect, get things back on track? Um, well, I look a lot at forgiveness. Forgiveness of what, what you've done or what you're thought to have done is, is something that often gets in the way of families working well together. And so we borrowed from a, a psychologist, Janice Abrams Spring, who actually works not far from here, I don't think. Um, she, she was a psychologist who dealt, her, her seminal book that, that we really liked was called uh, how, can you, how, can I, how Can I Forgive You? And it was based on working with couples who had experienced, an, married couples who had experienced an infidelity but didn't want to break up. And yet there was this betrayal and how can I get beyond a betrayal? Now in family business, a lot that goes on is a sense of betrayal. And so it seemed like a very parallel way of thinking about what goes, goes on. And so the framework that we've adapted um, basically says there are four kinds of forgiveness. You can, you can choose not to forgive, and I think that's something that people often don't really think about, that holding that grudge or continuing to be angry over time is a choice. So you can decide I'm not gonna forgive because it serves my interest however, to, however it does to, to you know, keep that. Um, I can do sort of a cheap forgiveness and say, okay, fine, don't worry about it, um, which doesn't really help anybody, or because my religion says it's good to forgive and so that's what I'm going to do, um, and that's, that's not, not genuine. Um, you can also go through a process of, of acceptance and um, there's also a process of genuine forgiveness. So, and I can talk more about those if people are interested, but essentially what, you're, what you need to do is say, okay, how can I step back and recognize my contribution to the impasse? What was my role in this altercation? What was my role in letting us get to where we've gotten to? And I think that's sort of the start. And then to you know, set up an opportunity to talk about it and, and make genuine apologies and, and uh, move forward. Last question for me. It's a tap into your expertise. How do um, personal and unique values, goals, and personality traits play into the ability of a family business to function and thrive? Um, 
Well, you hit on sort of the you know, two big reasons for conflict, which are opposing goals and incompatible values. So if you, if you think about people who have goals that are not that they're different, but that they're really in opposition, you know, we're going to grow and be a national chain versus we're going to you know, stay small and high quality and local, those are opposing goals. And if the, the owners have opposing goals, there's going to be conflict. If there are incompatible values, and not just different values, but those that are incompatible, that interfere with the work that you're trying to do. So in family companies, we often look at risk tolerance as a value. So if grandpa told me that I should never borrow a penny, I shouldn't even have a credit card, um, it's going to be very hard for me to work with you if you're saying, look, you know, I'm at the business school and, and judicious use of leverage is a good thing. Um, those, those are really incompatible. So those are going to create the, re, you know, the, the, the platform from which conflict can develop. And personality traits, you know, sometimes you like people, sometimes you don't. Um, and then the trick is to understand how can we coexist? And, you know, how can I not let those little things that you do really bother me? Or how can I not take the bait, you know, when you push those buttons? And, you know, we say the siblings, you know, can push your buttons because they installed them and they know how to get at them. So, um, you know, that's, I think, how, how it plays in. It was interesting as someone who's worked in a business school for a long time when uh, you gave the example of you know, two siblings, one goes to business school, the other one doesn't, and the one goes to business school thinks they've learned something new and the other one doesn't understand it and, and it causes conflict. And you yep. know, so it was sort of think of our role as, we, we, don't, we think of ourselves as educators, not conflict creators, but, uh, <laughs> but it, you know, confronted us to that. think about that yeah. a little bit. All right, let's, uh, let's open the floor to questions from all of you. Can conflict be healthy? Can so conflict be healthy? Yes, I think conflict can be healthy. I mean, it exists, so it, it's not a killer to begin with, necessarily. But you know, just like any kind of friction, it can make things move forward. So if we're able to you know, have a discussion about something, um, the fact that we think different things, we want different things so that we're in conflict on what we want to do, you can generate a lot of better ideas because of the conflict. So lack of communication seems to be really prevalent in most businesses. But it seems to me in small businesses where it's a family-owned business, it's even worse because of the personality conflicts that are taking place at the same time. Is that something that you found in your research? Um, it's not. The co communication is clearly critical. You have to be able to communicate and get across your ideas and what you're trying to achieve. I don't see fixing communication as the panacea because so often, the problem is not the communication. The communication is really a symptom of a greater problem. So if I talk to you in a very harsh way and say, you know, whatever I'm going to say to you, I could learn to use a different tone and to be nicer and to ask you how your weekend was or understand your communication style so I can approach you in the correct way. Um, but if the problem isn't really that I speak harshly in my tone, my problem is, is that I have no respect for how you're doing your job or what your ideas are, et cetera, the fact that we can commun I can talk to you in a, in a better way isn't really going to fix the underlying problem. So I, I think communication, you know, we do disk assessments for a lot of families where we try to understand what is their communication style. And so do I talk to somebody in a way where I say, how was your weekend and tell me about it, or do I say, I just need two minutes of your time. We need to do one, two, and three. I, I can learn certain things which can help. 
But if the underlying values and goals are you know, incompatible or in opposition, the communication isn't going to be the cure. But it's, it's important. Fixing communication isn't enough. It's not going to get an underlying. It may be a good thing to do, but it, it right. won't get at the underlying problems. Right. Usually it helps, but it, it's not going to solve the problem. Hi, since this has come up twice tonight, I feel like I need to ask the question. Can you elaborate a little bit on the challenges from the first generation to second generation transition versus maybe like a third, fourth, and so on? Sure. Um, when you have a founder-led company, generally that founder is the entrepreneur. And he or she is, um, often has a healthy dose of narcissism. And I, and I do mean a healthy dose because you need a little bit of that to believe that you can make that bigger mousetrap. You need that to believe that you can do it better than other people, to really create the conditions and work 24-7. And that's what makes for, for the, the product or service to be successful. In the next generation, that can be difficult to take as the siblings come up and they start thinking there are different ways to do this, there are better ways, and you know, or, or, or things could change. Um, and the founder generally is not interested in having any sort of oversight or you know, advisory board or let alone a fiduciary board because he or she really has a very clear sense that I've done this, I've made it, it's mine, and I don't want somebody telling me what to do. So there's, there's often a challenge to siblings the second generation who are trying to say, could you retire so I could take over? Or could you, you know, really take me seriously and give me some, some rope to, to run with something? And so there are things like that that are, are often challenging. Going down into the next generations, you often have the siblings who didn't have a whole lot of structure and job descriptions and accountability because the founder said, you'll do marketing and you'll do operations and somebody else is going to, um, you know, do finance. And the next generation, the third generation, is trying to come in with no articulated career path, with no sense of, well, what would my job be if I came into the family business? And so, you know, that gets complicated to bring in the next gen. And if it's siloed, often that means that the siblings don't, they get along, but they don't talk to each other. They trust, because they can predict that you're going to do great in your finance role, and I'm going to do great in my marketing role, and we stay out of each other's way. But to transition that sort of structure is very difficult without an org chart. You know, those are generally very flat organizations. So um, you know, by the time you get to the third to the fourth generation, you generally have some structure in there. You often have a board that has an ability to really review executives in a real way and hold people accountable. They have you know, compensation committees that make sure compensation is rational and not subjective or not we all get paid the same regardless of what we do. Um, so those are some of the things. I don't know if I Thank answered. Thank you, that's very helpful. For those of you who are struck by the phrase healthy dose of narcissism, uh, that comes up near the end of the book. So you, you, you want to get the setup first. You don't want to just jump into it. On the finance side, he gets the finance family businesses, and I've been doing it for north 40 years now. Um, and it's that third generation where you seem to have the most problem, just as you articulated, because dad or mom uh, anointed who was going to do what. But it's that third generation where now you have two or three siblings in the business who are, have their respective roles, but they have three or four children each, okay? And who comes into the business and who doesn't come into the business? And then you start watering the oversight and management of the business. It becomes almost 
unmanageable. So you have any advice for that, how you'd segue to that third generation? Because I think that's one of the most difficult ones to go from the second to the third generation. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a couple things at play with that. In the second generation, you know, we talked about trust and how important that is. The siblings typically grow up in the same house. They have the same parents and they build the same sort of values generally, or not that they necessarily keep them, but they really know each other well. Whereas the cousins live in separate houses and one of their parents is not from that family, so they bring all sorts of different ideas and values and, and ways of doing things so that there's differences and there isn't as much trust, not in a bad way, but just there's not, you, they don't know each other as well. So, so there's sort of a condition for conflict and, and difficulty and decision making built in there. In that third generation, if you don't have the structure so that you don't have any hierarchy, you don't have job descriptions, you don't have accountability, it's unclear who can do the job. It also, if it's a smaller company where you can't just absorb everybody, is it just the ones who are from the oldest siblings branch or the, or the oldest kids who just got there first and they get the jobs? Um, and then there are others who are actually perhaps better qualified but there's no space. So I think to the extent that the family members can get together and this you know, speaks to the communication and it's, it's not just the communication but just having a forum for communication. Um, to talk about what is it that we want for this company and how are we going to uh, you know, deal with family employment and let's come up with a policy for family employment. And um, that way it becomes clearer um, as to whom that job should go to and um, how, to, how to figure some of those things out. I mean, there's, there's no right answer that's going to work every time, but I think talking about what is our vision Again, vision is incredibly important. If our vision is to grow and you know, maybe, maybe we don't have any family members who are the right people who have the right skills for this. Um, maybe we have 10 of them and we're gonna have to choose. So what is a way that we can choose so that it's objective and it's not that I've just never really liked you as much as I, I like you. It's, it's just that, that you know, the skills are there or, or, or there's a process in place to make those choices. Sometimes people look at conflict like it's surgery. They see the pain of surgery, but they don't see the solution that surgery brings forth. How do we get people to look at conflict and dealing with issues among siblings and partners for the solution uh, per you know, viewpoint versus I don't want to deal with this? So how do you do it as sort of a positive step rather than a, you know, ease the pain? You know, I mean, I, I think when families are proactive, that's what they're looking for. You know, nobody ever calls me to say everything is great, just thought I'd let you know. They call because there's a pain point, there's something that's not working that's problematic in a variety of different ways. So I think by letting them know and think, you know, into the future about what could we achieve what is it that we want this, this business or this family enterprise to be in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Then you think about what could you do now and why go through the difficulty that change brings to, to achieve this? Um, but typically, people either call because they're afraid because they saw what happened to their friend who was in a similar situation and it didn't end well, so they want sort of some inoculation from, from that. Um, or, or they're really in pain and they're just really looking for help. So it would be great if everybody said, let's, let's be proactive. Um, I'd be out of a job probably after a while, but um, 
That's right. It'd be preventative medicine, right? That's right. With the family. That's interesting. I, I look at my client, so to speak, as the entire family business system. So my job is to have every stakeholder, and I count the business as a stakeholder too because it's important, and that's why our consultants all have MBAs because we have to understand business and, and make sure we understand what will allow the business to be sustainable. But we look at all of the stakeholders, and so even if the business is paying the bill or one stakeholder is paying the bill, everybody understands that we are there for everybody. And we cannot, for us to come up with a solution that works really well for three people and two others are disenfranchised, that's not a successful engagement. So we have to make sure that everybody has a voice and everybody has an ability to think through and, and come up with different ideas that would really meet their needs. Thank you, Blair and David, for a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think uh, not only uh, family, business, family business owners who are in the audience, but also those of us who are trying to be really good and better partners to family businesses uh, have learned a lot today. So I really appreciate, uh, really appreciate your conversation. Please join me with some applause.